This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Credibility, respect, and trust. If you Google those three words, it often leads you to Google even another word, and that word is leadership. And if you Google leadership, you could be overwhelmed by the quantity of responses. And if you go into Amazon and you're looking for a book, 85,000 books. And if you're looking for the right TED Talk on leadership, 16,000 choices. And when you read about and you learn and listen to the great leaders of the world, you typically hear about their heroes who have informed their own style of leadership. And they often include some of the obvious ones, Gandhi, Churchill, my favorite Nelson Mandela, and of course, Abraham Lincoln. But one exceptional leader in his TED Talk talks about his inspirational heroes that don't include any name you are likely to recognize. He speaks about two people who taught him the crucial leadership lessons he has used to build an extraordinary career. One of his heroes stood at four feet, 11 inches tall. The other, a whopping five foot one inch. Neither of them wrote a book. They never delivered a speech. Nor did they do any one particular thing that we typically ascribe to great leaders. They grew up in abject poverty, but they grew old in abiding love. And the best part, they led their only child to heights he couldn't begin to dream about without them. Although they are no longer with us, I know that he would have followed them to the end of the earth. Which brings us to this evening's guest. His name is Suri Surinder, and his experience spans 30 years as an executive, a consultant, a board member, author, entrepreneur, college professor, and he is now the CEO of an organization called CTR Factor. And if you look at his body of work or listen to his extraordinary TED Talk, he talks about one radical realization, that leadership is a science that can be modeled, it can be measured, and it can be demonstrated universally. His approach to leadership and followership and teamwork I found incredibly refreshing, and I am proud to host him this evening. Suri, welcome to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you so much. Such an authentic introduction. Uh, it goes to your level of preparation on this. You almost made me tear up there talking about my parents, but you're absolutely right. I certainly appreciate being here with you today. Thank no, you. that's great. You know, I too had very strong parents that were had tremendous influence in my growing up. And when I hear or read about other leaders, that we may look to Churchill or to Gandhi, whoever that may be, but sometimes the leaders are the ones who are right in front of us and we don't realize it. So the obvious question before we get into your background, what was the magic of your parents that led you after years of consulting and coaching to come to that conclusion? Yeah, and that, and that realization came to me later in life. Um, when I was a kid, 
all I knew was that um, my parents had a tremendous amount of influence on me, which is not unusual for most kids, that is the case. But for me, I was a particularly obstinate, stubborn, obdurate, uh, ordinary kid. And so for me to be influenced by my parents as much as I was, was actually unusual. And then when I stopped and thought about what generated that kind of followership from me, from somebody for whom I have, I, I'm allergic to authority, you know? I break out in hives if somebody tries to tell me to do something, which is why I have my own business now after 25 years in corporate America. So for me to, to voluntarily go out and, and ask my parents for their opinion, even when I didn't need to, and I was thousands of miles away from them here in the US and they were in India, uh, it took something special on their part and that's what led to my whole philosophy about the CTR factor of leadership that you mentioned. They earned those three currencies from me, Chuck, that you mentioned at the start of the broadcast, credibility, trust, and respect. And they earned those currencies by demonstrating and delivering results, relationships, and resources. That's the short answer to the question. All right, we'll come back to that. But before we do, I'd like to hear you wrote a really interesting article that you posted on LinkedIn called My Journey, My Journey, My Experience. Tell us about your journey, your coming to America. Where did it begin? And then how did you begin to get onto that career mountain that led you to do such extraordinary things? Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, my journey started really, really early. Um, I, was, I grew up in India, New Delhi, India. Uh, my father was a government bureaucrat. He was actually an interpreter in the Indian version of the Senate. Uh, he was a simultaneous interpreter. So as uh, in India, there are 22 different languages, and senators come from different states. So as they're speaking in one language, my father would translate it into English and vice versa. Um, he wasn't, you know, his total salary, annual salary, I think, was um, $500 a year. Mm. We lived in a two-room flat. It was a government flat in New Delhi. I want you to picture this, and I want your audience to picture this. Um, a two, not a two-bedroom, a two-room flat in New Delhi. My mother was a homemaker. And um, we, were, we were so poor that we didn't realize we were poor, you know, because everybody else around us was in a similar situation, so you don't even think about it. And at the age of seven, when I was in the third grade, I remember my mother, God bless her soul, like you mentioned, both of them are past, and I hope she, she's okay with my saying this. My mother was a tiger mom. We know how Asian moms can be tiger moms. And she, at an early age, she put me on a relentless schedule that I couldn't slip out of. Every minute of the day was scheduled for me from the time that I got up, saying my prayers, getting ready for school, going to school, coming back, taking a nap, you know, getting something to eat, uh, going out to play for an hour, studying. And it was punishing on, 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 my, on my young soul, my young rebellious soul. And I remember at the age of seven stumbling into my first realization, Chuck, around these currencies that we talked about. Um, um, when I asked, I, I asked my mother, why are you making me do this? Because I fought, I, I fought 
passively, I fought aggressively, I fought passive aggressively. Um, and ultimately, I said, why do you, she said, I want you to succeed. I want you to break out of this situation that we're in. I want you to do better than we did. And the only way out of where we are today is academic excellence. Mm -hmm. I want you to excel academically. So I remember asking her the question, and I want your audience to ask, ask themselves this question. I said, what does that mean to you? How would you measure academic excellence? You know, And she said to me, well, the simplest form of measuring it is, is, is your grades. Now, I've since discovered there's more to academic excellence than grades, okay? <laughs> it's really understanding what you're being told. Amen, sir. Uh, but but it, at that time, it kind of made sense to me. And I said, okay, well, what if I tell you this? I will get all A grades in every test and in every course, okay? Um, but in return for that, I want you to not tell me what to do and when to do it. So I will manage my own schedule. At the age of seven, I wanted to be self-driven. My locus of control was internal. I said, I will, I will set my own schedule, and I will deliver those A grades. And she looked at me very doubtfully, and she said, I'm not sure you can do that. And I said, just give me a chance. The first test that I don't score an A in, you can pull me back right back in. And she took a chance on me, grudgingly. And from that moment on till I finished college, I, my parents never told me what to do academically, schedule-wise, ever again, because I never disappointed them on that metric. Right. And Chuck, that was my first realization that results rule. They rule. If, if as a seven-year-old, I could influence and persuade my grown parents by delivering results, I ask your audience, do you not think that you can influence your boss and their boss and the CEOs of their company by delivering results. To your point, we can lead from where we are. I don't care if you have direct reports or you don't, if you're the lowest person on the totem pole, you know, if you have a team that you manage, it doesn't matter. People will listen to you if you deliver distinctive, consistent Result. And what does that suggest with the framework of how you discuss leadership and followership? Well, a, a, a very, very good question, Chuck. One of the things I found out is that, that leadership is a voluntary act on the part of our followers to accept us as leaders. Sometimes we mistake our managerial role as our leadership role. But the reality is your, your managerial job, you could be appointed to by somebody above you. But our leadership role is one to which we are elected by the people below us. And that is a voluntary act. It is a supreme act of sublimation of egos on the part of those who choose to bestow on us that mantle of leadership. And in order for them to make that voluntary choice, which is mental and emotional, okay, it's not physical, you can't see it. It's in the hearts, minds, and souls of the people inside. For them to make that voluntary decision, you need to earn certain currencies from them. And the first currency is credibility through results. Mm -hmm. If you deliver for them the results they're looking for, and for the business, the results that the business is looking for, people will voluntarily want to follow you because it would be irrational not to. Right. You delivered the results to your parents and they gave you wings to fly. 
in followership, often the followers are a bit confused as toward how much leeway their leaders are willing to give them. Is that how it works, or is there something else that you talk about? Well, that's, that's a very good point as well. Followers sometimes can be confused in terms of how far they can go, what are the limitations of what they can do, you know, and how empowered they are to act on their own. And that is something that leaders need to communicate with them. And you talk a lot about communication, Chuck. A lot of climb to the talk is about clarity in communication, compelling communication. So a lot of that, uh, of the guidelines and, and the perimeter of, of their power can be determined through continuous communication. And it's not a fixed quantity. It's something that can change over time and can change over space. So depending on how good your followers might be at what they do, you might give them tremendous rope to do whatever they want. On the flip side, if some, some of them are more junior, they don't have as much experience, you may choose to rein them in a little bit more and have a smaller perimeter. But that is on a case-by-case -case basis, and over time it varies as well. But the best way to determine that is through clear communication. I appreciate that, but in your TED Talk, you talk about a, a paradigm that I think is the opposite of what everybody else thinks. Because sometimes when we read about leaders, we often have the mindset that the leaders are choosing their followers. But you flip that concept on its head. Talk to us about followers picking leaders. Yes, uh, all of our research, I did a lot of research on this, primary research as well as secondary research into this concept of followership, because there's a whole bunch of books written about leadership, mm -hmm. not as much written about followership. So we went out and asked people who the leaders were in their lives. And some of them could be folks like Abraham Lincoln, Gandhi, and so on. But we said it could be your grandparent, it could be your parent, it could be your kids. Who did you look up to as a leader in your life personal or professional, and why did you follow them? The answers that came back were amazingly insightful. A lot of the times people told us, you know, we elected somebody to look up to and to follow not based on a conscious cognitive process. It was a subconscious or unconscious instinctive process that was driven by how that person acted, not necessarily by what they said, mm -hmm. but by what they did. Right. the example that they set. And there's a switch that happens that turns in people's minds where they convert to becoming a follower. When that switch is on, you will get commitment from them. If that switch is not on, the best you might get is compliance. Mm. And you won't know when the switch is on and off, and that switch is not permanently on or off. In other words, we have to earn followership from our people on a daily basis through our actions. But, so it is not an easy thing to do. I tell people when you look at leaders, big offices, plush carpets, mahogany furniture, executive assistants, attached bathrooms, don't get taken in by all of those accessories because leadership is tough. You're in a fishbowl. People are, when you know this, Chuck, having been a leader in so many different organizations, People are looking at you all the time and they're making decisions on a day-by-day, minute-by-minute basis. Do I choose to follow this person today in this moment? 
You are tuned in to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia, and my guest today is Suri Surinder. Suri, I appreciate that. Let, let's, let's switch the focus, and I want to talk about your transformation. When we look at your profile, you were an engineer. You studied, and you came to the States and studied engineering at Rice as, as well. Yet, a shift occurred, a change. At what point did you no longer be an engineer in exchange for something else. Talk about what was in your mind and how you made that leap. And, be, and I say that, sorry, because I know a lot of our listeners, they are contemplating, do I change from the thing that I came from? They're not sure. What yes. advice can you offer? Yes, and I, that's, a, again, engineering is easy. And Chuck will tell you this. Engineering <laughs> is easy. People are well, difficult. Right. You know? <laughs> where'd, you, where'd you hear that? This is Garcia's favorite, <laughs> one of his favorite quotes. And, and so that's my first point. My second point is, yes, the transformation journey is important. And I want to I talk about two milestone points in that journey that made me realize that. The, f the first milestone after I was seven and I grew up, when I, w I went to um, college in India to the Indian Institute of Technology. Mm -hmm. It's a premier engineering institution, very Indeed. difficult to get into. Right. Hundreds of thousands of kids apply, a few thousand get in. I was fortunate to get in. Um, but after I got in and I finished my tenure there, I was, I was a junior, I wanted to come to the US. I had seen a lot of Hollywood movies, read a lot of American authors, <laughs> and I, I felt my place was in the US. But I was, I was the only child of my parents, and it was very difficult to convince them to let their only child, that was their whole life, leave and go thousands of miles away. <clears throat> and I stumbled upon my second realization, <clears throat> which is I started studying up on the US, everything about this country, the schools, the environment in the colleges, the kinds of education you can get, the kinds of career opportunities, the quality of life, the standard of living, what the cities are like. And back then, we didn't have the internet. I would go to the American Library in town and spend hours poring over books to know everything about this country. And every time my parents had an objection, I would have a counter based upon real knowledge about the environment in this country. And it was amazing. I convinced both my parents once again to allow their teenage son at the age of 21 actually to leave India and come to the US with a few hundred dollars in his pocket based upon knowledge. So my second part of my transformation was understanding that if you know more than everybody else around you, if you have superior relevant intellectual resources about your space, if you're master of your domain, and Chuck, you're a fan of science. No, 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 big one. <laughs> and and I, this is a different master of your domain. No, than no I appreciate the <laughs> distinction. <laughs> but if you're a subject matter expert at what you do, people are going to follow you. Remember that voluntary act of followership? They will voluntarily want to follow you because you would have earned the currency of respect from them Indeed. through knowledge. That's my second milestone and my third a point in that transformation journey that you talk about was after I came to the US, I went to Rice University for my master's in structural engineering on a full ride, by the way, amazingly. Um, but they, they were giving me a stipend. Rice is a wonderful school. They gave me a stipend of $400 a month, which even back in 1984 was not quite enough in Houston, Texas. So I stumbled upon an ad in the school notice board for a room above the garage at the house of a Houston banker in return for doing work around the house. 
And um, so I dressed myself up in the best duds I could find <laughs> and knocked on the door of this beautiful house right next to the Rice University campus, uh, a little bit nervous and anxious. Uh, and the door opened and a, 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 a guy, six foot seven giant opened the door. Um, he was a Texas banker, born and raised in Houston, bald as the day is long before Michael Jordan made bald cool, white guy, looking down upon me, five foot seven on a good day, 95 pounds soaking wet. The biggest thing on me at the time was my big mustache. You know, it was almost like standard accessory, you know. Um, and um, with a thick accent, couldn't be more different than me pulled me into his house figuratively and literally, sat me down on the sofa and said, what can I do for you? And I said, I'm here in response to the ad. And he says, I was really expecting, we were really expecting a girl because it's a lot of stuff around the house, interestingly, unconscious biases even then. He said, have you cleaned up a house before, vacuum? I said, no. He said, have you uh, caulked a jacuzzi? No. Trimmed a tree? No. Washed the car? No. Watered the lawn? No. I grew up cosseted, you know, spoiled. My parents wouldn't let me do anything other than study. He looked at me for a moment, called his wife. He says, Mary, come on in here. What did you say your name was? He mangled my name. And he says, you know, he, he hasn't done anything, but he wants to take this job. What do you think? And I remember they look both looking at me with a mixture of sort of pity and curiosity. And then he says, you know what? I, I said to him, I'm a good learner. Okay. I deliver results. Remember what I learned when I was in third grade. And I said, I, I'm a fast learner. Importance of knowledge. I knew by then. And he looked at me and said, that may be the case. But you know what I like the most about you is that you're honest and I feel I can trust you. I don't think you're gonna give me bull crap. So I'm gonna help you. He, he kept me there. He you gave, certainly were not qualified for those jobs. I was not qualified. No experience. In many jobs, I have not been qualified. <laughs> right, exactly. I've run billion dollar that's my companies point. without being qualified. So for your audience that's out there that feels tentative or that feels scared or nervous in terms of what they can and can't do and how far they can and can't go, I'm here to tell you, these qualities will count more than your subject matter expertise on the job. Say yes to the thing that scares you the most. Yes. And get comfortable with discomfort. I have Chris Whitfield here, you know, raising the roof over there. But my, my point here is, please remember this lesson because that is so important. He, this gentleman stayed with me. He, he, he coached, educated me on the ways of life here, about American football, about baseball. He, made, he gave me a reference when I went from my MBA to Baruch College right here in New York City. He gave me a recommendation. He referred me to jobs. The, the little kid, he had a one-year-old baby daughter that I would put to sleep, has now grown. She has kids of her own. There are two dogs that I would clean after that would sleep with me. You know, all, I built that relationship based upon a dependable, caring relationship because that buys you the currency of trust. Indeed. And those are the three currencies, Chuck, that you open this discussion with, credibility through results, trust through relationships, and respect through resources. I want to get to one other topic very quickly because you talk about it in TED and some of your body of work and I think that's something that is not quite appreciated when you hear names of organizations. You hear brand names and you have a certain association, but you talk about the alignment of the people and the culture. What are your observations about what people should look for as it relates to the pervasive culture in an organization? 
Well, one of the things we found once I came up with the with the CTR factor model and these three currencies, then people would say to me, "Okay." We get your credibility quotient, you can measure that. We get your trust quotient, we get your respect quotient. And if you add it up, you get a leadership quotient. What is a good score for me? On a scale of zero to 10, what, you have lots of data, Siri. What is a good leadership quotient to shoot for? And I kept looking at the data, but I found people with lower leadership quotients succeeding. So I couldn't find a direct statistical correlation between the quantitative score and leadership success. I was missing something. And the more I poked into the data, the more I found what was missing. And the missing part of it was the alignment that you mentioned. So if you are a high credibility leader that focuses on results, the execution-oriented person that gets stuff done, but you are in a company culture that's highly relationship-focused, that's trust-based, there is a misalignment. People are going to look upon you like Al Dunlap, chainsaw Al Dunlap, okay? They'll say, if you remember with Sunbeam, he went in and fired, fired a whole bunch of people. Yeah. He turned the company around, but people didn't like him. Right. If you're in a high-trust culture, but you're a high-credibility leader, there's a misalignment. If you're a high-respect leader that focuses on subject matter expertise, in a high credibility-oriented culture that looks for results, people are going to say, eh, he knows a lot, but he's a blowhard. I don't know what he's delivered for us recently. The alignment between your primary leadership modality and the culture of the organization that you're in is critical for your success. It's not the absolute scores that matter. It's your scores relative to the environment that you're in. Spot on. And what we want to leave our listeners with is the climb leadership question we ask ourselves and we ask everybody else. What do we want our listeners to think? What do we want them to feel? And what do we want them to do when this interview is over? Well, the first thing I would tell you is uh, don't worry about what you may know or not know. Don't worry that you may or may not have tenure and seniority. Focus on earning these three currencies from the people around you. Typically, I would say start off with building the relationships and building trust. Whatever you say, you should do. You know, talk without action gets no traction. So follow through on everything you say you're going to do. Deliver. It will, it will build trust. Focus on delivering results. Figure out how success is defined in the organization and do your best to deliver that. And lastly, become a sponge. Learn by osmosis. Be dedicated to being the most well-informed person in your space that you can be. You do these three things, you're going to earn those three currencies. You're going to be incredibly successful. Fantastic. And lastly, just to get to know you a little bit better and to leave our listeners with, tell us about CTR Factor, what you do, and how to find you. Well, Chuck, thank you for that opportunity. CTR Factor is a small boutique consulting and executive education company that focuses on everything that we just talked about here. It focuses on leadership, it focuses on communication, and it focuses on emotional intelligence, three things that I know we do a lot of here. And what we do is we go in, we assess leadership profiles based upon this model. We will measure what your leadership quotient is, 360-degree assessment, and then we'll focus on which areas need improvement. We can work with you on a one-on-one -on -one basis through coaching and mentoring. We can work through a broader educational platform. But essentially what we do is we help to build leaders. It is our way of giving back. This country and this community has given me so much at this stage. 
I want to pay it forward, and this is our, our, our platform to do so. Credibility, respect, and trust. They are the pillars of this talk. Suri, I cannot thank you enough for your insight and your advice and for coming into the studios here in New York. Thank you very much. To all of the listeners, you have listened to A Climb to the Top, Stories of Transformation. I'm Chuck Garcia. Thank you for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.